Grace and peace to you. Thanks, Brian, for that kind introduction. It is always nice to be back here. That's tall enough. But especially just to see people that we knew for so long and also new faces. It's exciting to see what God is doing here at Mercy as he gathers his people and builds his church. Well, you may have noticed that the title of our sermon this morning is The God Who Fathers. And before we get into our passage, I want to take just a minute to talk about the idea, the concept of God as a father. We're going to look at three ways in the passage that God fathers us. But the reason we want to take just a minute to talk about this is because regardless of who you are or how you came in here this morning, one thing is true of all of us, that we have all been profoundly and deeply shaped and impacted by our fathers. Now, you may hesitate at that statement, depending on your experience of your father, but this is a true reality that we can't escape, that we are all formed by who our fathers are. We are formed either by their presence or their absence, their love, affection, and affirmation, or the lack of it. And so I'm not naive or unaware that as we talk about God as our Father, this can be a difficult concept for some of us, that we carry baggage that can make it difficult to understand how God could be a good Father. And so we have to do a little work before we start talking about this, right? The reality is that all of our fathers had the same problem. They are or were men. Men broken by the curse of sin. Men who have problems, right? They have bad days. They get tired and frustrated. They lose their temper. They have goals. They have unfulfilled dreams and potential. Frustrated ambitions. And so... All of our fathers, regardless of how good or bad they were, were imperfect men. And when we begin to talk about God as our father, we need to take a moment and pause to realize that he is not like this. That God is a person, but he is not a man. And so God's fatherhood is based in and defined by his perfect, holy, and eternal character. God is not a man who grows tired or impatient. He has no unsatisfied hopes or dreams, no sinful desires. He is perfectly and eternally fulfilled. He is a Trinitarian God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for eternity, he has dwelt in perfect relationship. He does not need anything from you. He does not need your affirmation or your love. He is not insecure or manipulative. He is a perfectly fulfilled and loving God who has always had what he needs. And so what I want you to take away from this is that as we talk about how God fathers us, we have to do so with the lens that every aspect of his fatherhood, every way in which he comes to us as a father is based out of his perfect good and holy love for us as his children. God is a perfect father. He has immeasurable love for us. Now, 
Again, I know for some of us here today, there is enough baggage and scars from our fathers that a three-minute introduction is not going to just move that out of the way. And so what I want to invite you to this morning as we get into our passage is take a moment and pray and ask that God would help you to receive and to hear how he is your father and loves you, how he is different than your experience of an earthly father. In just a moment, we'll get into the passage. It is a pretty long psalm, Psalm 78, so before we start reading it, we're going to read select passages. I won't make you listen to the whole thing, so I'm just going to summarize it lightning quick. Psalm 78 is what we would call a historical psalm. It's a psalm where the psalmist is recounting the history of Israel, and specifically the redemptive history of Israel, the story of how God has made them his people. And the psalmist, throughout this, this passage, emphasizes two particular things. He emphasizes that God has come as a father to his people. He's rescued them, gathered them, instructed them, saved them with his mighty works. And the other emphasis is the continued disobedience and unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel, the people of God. That they continually, despite God's goodness, rebel. They fall into sin. They forget his goodness and his mighty works. And so that is the background of the psalm. If you'll please stand for the reading of God's word, we'll read our select passages. Psalm 78 in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation of the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The psalmist goes on to describe how Israel is rebellious and does not remember the works of God. And then we pick up in verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their hearts by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck a, wa- a rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord had heard, he was full of wrath. His fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate the bread of the angels. He sent food. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power, he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sands of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for he gave them 
what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them. And he killed the strongest of them, laid low the young men of Israel. Despite all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. He killed them and they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock. The most high God was their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for the iniquity, for their iniquity, and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. The psalmist goes on to recount how that goes on over and over. The people rebel and God forgives. And we will pick up again down in verse 67. This is the end of the psalm. The psalmist is wrapping up and explaining that after this cyclical cycle of sin and grace and sin and grace, God brings an end to the cycle. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the heavens, like the earth, which was founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance, With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Pray with me. God of grace, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning eager to hear from you, eager to learn how you are our Father and how you tenderly care for us as your people. Pray that your spirit would speak and you would give us ears to hear. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. The psalmist starts our passage this morning by telling us he's going to reveal a parable, a a mystery, dark sayings of old. Sounds like the start of a Lord of the Rings book. It's great. He goes on immediately to explain what that mystery is, that that mystery, that great ancient wisdom that is hidden is that God condescends to his people. What are we talking about when we say God condescends? You know, typically condescension is used in negative connotations, right? If I say that I am condescending, if someone accuses me even of being condescending to my wife or a friend or a coworker, it means that I'm probably being disrespectful and it's not going to go well. It usually means that I am belittling them or talking down to them. And so we often think of condescension in a negative light. But whether we thought about it or not, we all realize that condescension is not only necessary, it is sometimes essential, right? So when I talk to my three-year-old, I condescend to him. I, not because I don't think he's intelligent or think less of him, but because I want relationship with him, I began to begin to change how I speak in a way that he can understand, right? He, regardless of what I'm doing or saying, he listens to everything and repeats it typically. 
But to understand what I'm saying, I have to come to his level. And so in this context, condescension is an act of love. It's an act of building relationship. Some of you don't have kids. I get it. You have pets, cats, dogs, and you condescend to your dog. You speak to your dog in a way they can understand. If my dog understands and speaks back sometimes, maybe yours does, I don't know. But we all do this. And so what we know inherently is that condescension, the act of changing how we speak or act in order to build relationship, is an act of love. It is a way of coming to someone who is an inferior in a way that they can understand. And so when we talk about the condescension of God, we need to understand that this is an act of love. You see, we've already talked about God a little bit as a father and how he's different than us. But maybe we haven't really thought about how different God is, that he is wholly different from us, that he is eternal and, as we've said, immutable. He does not change. He does not grow tired. He has existed forever and is eternally creative and good and so beyond us that there is an incredible gap between us and God. And so this begs the question, how in the world could a God so beyond us be a good and close father? How could he be a God or a father that we could ever understand or relate to? Only through his condescension. And so just as we condescend to our children, God condescends to us as, our children, as his children because he loves us. Only his condescension is much greater in magnitude. And we see this in verses 4 through 8 of our psalm. It tells how, in verse 5, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. He commanded the fathers to teach it to the children. How his wondrous deeds rescue his people. And so, what we see happening in this passage is that God comes to a people, a broken people. We have Abraham, who is not a righteous man. He's got faith that is counted to him as righteousness, but he's not a righteous man. And then we speak of Jacob, his grandson, who is a slithering con man, right? Not a good dude. And God comes to them and says, I will be your God, your father, and you will be my people. He condescends to them. So we talk about this gap between us and God. It's really a twofold gap. There is the gap we've spoken of, the gap of his eternal nature and character and our weakness and frailty as created beings, but there is also the gap of his holiness and our lack of it. And so this is a gap. Our sin creates a barrier to relationship with God. It is a barrier that we could never cross. And so when we talk about God as a father, we have to deal with this gap. And what do we see happen? Is God a God who fathers us, or is he a God who wipes the slate clean and moves away from us? Is he an aloof, cold father who, like a clockmaker, sets us in motion but then leaves us to our own designs? No. He condescends. You see, what we see in the Old Testament is God crossing the gap himself. He comes to an undeserving people and makes them his. 
Not only does he come to them, he gives them his law, his instruction. He says, this is how you live. This is how you flourish and how you exist in relationship with me. This is the incredible love of God as a father. And it's important because when we talk about fatherhood, this is, again, one of the things that can be difficult for us. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's, there's something that goes on with us in relationships with our fathers. I think we've all perhaps felt that we were undeserving of our father's relationship, undeserving of their attention, their love, or affirmation, even if they were good fathers who told us otherwise. I think there's a natural longing we have for validation from our fathers. And I believe this is because, as the children of God who were created for relationship with him, we long for that fatherly relationship. And yet, the curse of sin steals it from us. And so, all of us long more than anything for the validation of our true father, and yet find that we are unable to attain it. And so, that comes forth. It comes through in our relationships with our earthly fathers, even if they're good, even if they love us. We're a little hesitant. We're a little, little uncertain to receive that love from our earthly fathers. And the ironic thing, the crazy thing is, what we see happen in the case of God as our father is that the one father we are truly unworthy of, the one father who we do not deserve his love or validation This is the father who comes to us and offers us those very things. The father who condescends to us, who gathers us as his people. He crosses the gap. He is not a cold, distant father. He is not a father who is making you earn it. He is the father who has condescended. He has come to you. And so what we see in this passage is that God is the God who fathers through condescension. He condescends to a particular people and makes them his own. He rescues them with his acts of power, and he guides and instructs them with his law. And this brings us to our second point, the father who disciplines. Not only does God call a people to himself and instruct them, he acts as a gracious father by disciplining them. Now, Whether we understand it or not or realize it or not, discipline is truly, if maybe the most, if not close to the most, loving act a parent can do for a child, right? We don't love discipline. We don't love doing it. We don't love disciplining or being disciplined. It's not necessarily fun. But discipline in itself is an act of love. And why is that? It is because discipline, when done properly, especially in a parental-child relationship, discipline is always done for the benefit of the one receiving the discipline, and it's always done at the expense of the one doing the discipline. So let's look at the passage and see that. What's happening in this passage, in the middle, middle of the psalm here? Israel continues to disobey over and over. And as God is leading them through the desert, they fall away. They, even though he has worked miracles and mighty acts for their behalf, they continue to disobey, to not believe him, to not trust him. And so God kindly calls them back with discipline. We see God disciplining them in a variety of methods. He 
disciplines them by giving them the sinful cravings of their hearts. He talks about the quail. They, they doubted. You know, God's done all of these things. He's brought them out of Egypt. He's provided for their needs. And they're like, oh, but can God give us a steak dinner? Oh, no. You know, it's, a, it's an act of disrespect, of doubt. And so what we see, this is an example of how at times, one of the most intense and yet gracious ways in which God disciplines us is by giving us exactly what we want in our sinful desires. We see God also disciplining through circumstances, by using the suffering and difficulties of life to discipline and correct his children. And so there are a few examples we could pick out, but what's important, what is meant to be seen in this passage, is that discipline is never meant to pay for the offenses. Instead, it is meant to caringly correct the offender. You see, discipline especially in a child-parent relationship, typically the discipline does not match the severity of the crime. Now, in our justice system, we hope that's the case, that the punishment matches the crime in severity. But when a parent disciplines, typically what is happening is that, yes, the child is receiving punishment, but not to the full extent of what they deserve. Instead, when we discipline our children, we're hoping to correct them to restore relationship, to encourage better behavior. And when we do that, when we don't give them what they fully deserve, we take on the weight of what they've done. We take on the weight of their offenses or crimes. You see, we even know this in real-world justice, that at times there are crimes which are far beyond discipline and instead only warrant punitive justice, only warrant punishment that destroys and does not restore. And so what we see happening is that when God disciplines us, he is always giving us less punishment than we deserve. And instead, he bears the weight of our crimes. Look at verse 38 with me. This is where the psalmist gives the reason that God doesn't destroy his people. It's not that he doesn't take their sin lightly. That he take, it's not that he takes their sin lightly or that it's not that bad. It's not that he is shirking at it. No, despite God's continued grace, the people had continued to rebel and to sin. So what reason is it that God does not completely destroy them? It's because he's merciful and takes on the weight of their sin. And in verse 38 it says, Yet he, being compassionate, atoned their iniquity, and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. Now that word atoned quite literally just means forgave. It is God forgiving our sin. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might be wondering, is this atonement a reference to sacrifices or the temple? And it's actually not. I was surprised to learn that myself when I read this chapter. Instead, it is a reference to God's forgiveness of his people. That he atones for our sin by bearing the weight of it himself. Tim Keller, the recently uh, deceased Presbyterian minister who's gone on to his reward, would often explain this concept of forgiveness, probably more clearly than almost anyone I've heard. And when he'd speak of forgiveness, he'd explain it like this. That forgiveness is always the person forgiving, saying, doing, I am willing to bear the weight of the wrong that you did. 
And this is how we see the great love of the Father in disciplining us. You see, no matter how much God disciplines us, no matter how severely he uses circumstances or trials to punish us, he's always doing it to bring us to restored relationship with him as our Father. He does not make us pay the full price of our sins or else we would be utterly destroyed. He does not stir up his wrath fully against us. Instead, like a gentle father, he forgives us. He bears the weight of our offenses, and he gently uses punishment to restore us to repentance and relationship with him. In Hebrews 12, the author speaks of how it is through discipline that we actually know we are God's children, that if we are not disciplined, we should begin to question, is God our father? And that is because Discipline is one of the greatest acts of love that the Father does for us. And so we see here that God is a God who fathers through discipline. It's this willingness of God to forgive, this willingness to atone for the sins of his people that brings us to the final point, that God is a God who fathers by redeeming. In this passage, we see that over and over again, the people fall away from God. And there's actually a covenantal theme in this psalm that is trying to be brought through. At the beginning, the psalmist says, he made a testimony, gave a testimony in Jacob. This is God's covenant promise to his people to be their God. And then in verse 10, and again in the end of the chapter, the psalmist declares that God's people have failed to keep his covenant. And yet, the God who forgives, who is willing to take the weight of our sin, keeps the covenant for us. Read verses 67 through 72 with me, if you will. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but the tr chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. Following the nursing, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. So what's happening in these verses is that despite the continued unfaithfulness of Israel, God is showing that he is going to make a way for their redemption he does it in three ways in this passage that we see. He chooses the tribe of Judah. He rejects Ephraim, the strong, powerful tribe, and chooses Judah, the weak and smallest tribe of Israel. He promises to build an eternal sanctuary. In previous verses, the psalmist had spoken of how the Ark of the Covenant was stolen as God intended when Israel was sinful. And so in, contrasting, in contrast to that, God is saying, I will build a sanctuary that you can't lose with your sin. And he chooses David as his servant. What, God, what the psalmist is showing is that God, despite all of the failures of Israel, because of his great mercy and grace, because of his willingness to atone, he is promising to provide a way for his people. The tribe of Judah, the source of leadership, he rejects the strong and the proud, David, who is a poor, dirty shepherd, 
brought to be the leader of his people, to guide them with a skillful and kind hand. This theme is showing that all of the strength of Israel, all the strength of God's people is not enough to cross the gap, to redeem them. And instead, it is through the power of their father that their covenant with God will be kept, that he will provide a way for the redemption. And so it is in these verses that we see the culmination of God's forgiveness as he fathers by providing a means of redemption for his people. Now, you've probably already caught on that the examples I just gave, as well as the whole psalm, are pointing to Christ. That Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, that he is the true and eternal sanctuary, and that he is the good shepherd, the better and perfect David. And so, as we come to the end of this song, as we, psalm, as we bring it to a conclusion, what we are meant to see is that all of the ways in which God fathers us, all of the ways in which he comes to us are most fully seen in the person and work of Jesus. It is in Jesus, the Son of God, the God of eternity, that we see the ultimate condescension of God. That Jesus, very God of very God, eternal and not begotten, we see God take on a human nature, that God does not give up his eternal nature, but instead he takes on the nature of a man, two natures and one person. This is the full and complete condescension of God. There is no gap. God has become one of us in order to fully come to his people. And so it is in Jesus that we see Emmanuel, God with us, that God has now not just condescended through prophets or through law, but that he has come to us, that he not only gives us his law, but he exegetes us, exegetes it, that's a mouthful. He instructs his people in perfect love and holiness. He is calling his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In Jesus, we see the full condescension of our Father. In Jesus, we have ultimate atonement and the procurement of our discipline. And here's what I mean by that. Earlier, when I said that God takes on the weight of our sin, that is not a metaphor. It is not that God is just, you know, like I said, he's banking it, he'll let it slide. It literally means that God takes on the weight of our sin. He does not wink at it. And so to say that God forgave his people means that he did something with the price of their sin. And in Jesus, we see where that weight went. It is in the sacrificial death of Jesus that we see the wrath of God unleashed on sin. You see, it is because Jesus was punished that we can be disciplined. Our sin and offense against the holy God were such that no amount of discipline could restore us. And, God, and if God had stirred up his wrath, and punished us to the extent we deserved, we would have been destroyed. And yet, this is what we see on the cross as our Savior dies. It is on the cross that the Father unleashes all of the wrath for all of the sin for all of his people. It's on the cross that the one true and perfect Son who deserved a relationship with the Father is rejected and crushed. 
so that we could be restored as the children of God. God fathers us quite literally by taking on the weight of our sin, forgiving us, rejecting Jesus, and making us his children. Because of this, because Christ has taken the full weight of our punishment, we can be disciplined instead of punished. And finally, in Jesus, we see the full and ultimate source of our redemption. For the people of God, Jesus is our only hope. Despite our pitiful repentance and our cyclical return to sin, despite our lack of covenant keeping, God has provided a way through Jesus. He has set Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, over his people. He has done away with the earthly sanctuary. Now we have Jesus, a temple not made by hands, who dwells with us eternally, a temple that we cannot lose because of our unfaithfulness. And Jesus stands eternally as the source of God's presence amongst his people. He's taken Jesus, the true and better David, and made him the king and shepherd of his people so that all of us who wander like sheep can be guided by the gentle hand of Christ. And so this morning, I hope you're able to see the ways in which God fathers us. That the eternal and incomprehensible God fathers us by condescending to us, by disciplining us, and by securing our redemption. That ultimately we see the work of God as our Father most fully displayed in the work of the Son. We see that God so loved us that he did not withhold his only Son, but that he would give all things to secure us as his people. This is how great the Father loves you. He is not a cold or distant father. Even now, the father is calling his children. Perhaps he's coming to you, condescending, reaching out, calling you into his loving arms. Maybe you're already his child. You're in the family, and he's disciplining you. You're stuck in your sin. You are growing cold towards your father, and his great love, he is disciplining you ridding you of your sin and your love for the world. It could be that this morning you have a heavy conscience, that you are plugged with guilt as you struggle with your sin, and you need to know that God fathers you by providing a secure redemption for you through Jesus, a redemption that will not fail, and that even now Jesus, the good shepherd, is guiding you and making sure that you will finish the race. And regardless of where you're at and how God is fathering you this morning, it leaves us with the same question. How will we respond? Will we lean into the God who has sought us, the Father who will let nothing stand in the way of loving his children? Will we acknowledge the loving grace in his discipline, turning from our sin and clinging closer to him? giving thanks for the God who forgives and atones for our sin? Will we seek our redemption in Christ, looking to him to guide us through our struggles? God is seeking you this morning. He is seeking to father you. My prayer for you is that you'll trust his intentions, that they are good and based solely in his love for you and that you will find rest in the arms of your Father. 
Will you pray with me? God of grace, great Father, we thank you for the incredible ways in which you come and love us and call us as your people, that you do not turn us away, but that you make a way for us to dwell in restored relationship with you through the work of your son, Jesus. We give thanks for that. We pray that it would seek, that this would sink deep into our bones and transform how we relate to you and walk as believers. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.